Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Good, man. I'm so honored to be here. Talk to you. No, that's a great honor to speak to you because um, for like many people in the heart community, you're quite a well-known figure. And I had only learned about you quite recently when we'd been speaking briefly on Instagram. I think I'd found you because I was doing a search on quite like other people with heart conditions. And you always wonder if there's people higher up like in the more limelight sort of thing. Yeah, you mean survivors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I found out there's this world-renowned pianist that just has, well, his, your story is quite interesting, but there's probably a lot of people that don't know you. Yeah, um, oh, so, a lot of people. <laughs> so I would people say 99.9% yeah, <laughs> of the planet. <laughs> Stuart, Stuart knows me. That's good. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the best place to start. <laughs> hey, but, but can I ask you real quick before we get started? What yeah. is what 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 is your condition? What were you born? I have the child you follow. Okay, so you're like Sean White. Exactly. The uh, Olympic uh, athlete, you know. Yeah. You need to get your own mountain and helicopter and have it just drop you. <laughs> she can start snowboarding. I know. I, th I think it's incredible what he's done as well. It's like, yeah, it's insane. I noticed he just retired as well this year yeah. after the Olympics. And he wasn't talking much about his condition while he had that because he uh, he didn't want people to know. He wanted to compete and not have anyone feel bad for him. Now he's talking about it all the time. Uh, so it's interesting when to choose to talk about something and when, you know, whether we keep it in. Well, that, yeah, that's an interesting question that I could I'll want to ask you as well, because being like you go like you, because what you do, you go around to pretty much the US touring, playing piano. Of course, people adore you. You're Paul Cardall, who is a world-known pianist and has released many, many albums. I saw how many it is on Spotify. You have your own... <laughs> You have your own label and you've you've done collab yeah. collabs with loads of people, but you've had some struggles as well. You know, it's not just been plain sailing. So yeah. could you kind of explain, give me your life story in, in oh, a yeah. way, like your history for your, your heart uh, story in a way? Yeah, I heard, you know, it's I heard, uh, Jordan Peterson is a famous psychiatrist in Canada. He says we weren't born to be happy, we were born to grow. And with growth comes pain and struggle. And people like you and I and listeners, look, we don't know anything else. We are, were born, we miraculously survived, and then we adapt to the environment around us while everyone tells us we are miracles. And back when, you know, 1973, when I came into the world, most people born with only a single functioning ventricle did not survive unless you were in a, a city that had a really good medical facility and cardiologists that understood the congenital world, which is completely different, as everybody knows, from, you know, the regular heart flow and there's so many different kinds 40,000 I think is what they've come up with different defects that they've documented 
And so being born with only a single functioning ventricle, I had pulmonary atresia. I, I didn't have my right atrium or my a little, I had a very small part of my right ventricle and I had a large ASD. But usually you have an ASD if you have two sides of the heart. So it was just a big hole right there. Right. So, so my mother had at that time was extremely discouraged because when she was a kid, her mom gave birth to another, to a baby, to her baby sister that died of a heart problem. So the minute they heard, you know, it's a heart problem, we've rushed your child to the children's hospital to operate, you know, um, she was just ner a nervous wreck. And fortunately, there was a surgeon in Utah, but he was about an hour's flight away in California at a conference. They called him. He got on the airplane because he said it was an interesting case. And he came to Utah, Salt Lake City, which is where I am originally from, Salt Lake City, Utah. We had the Olympics in 2002. Yay. Um, uh, and um, we had a good medical team, but and he knew what to do. He did a POTS shunt on me, which was kind of like the Glen or the Norwood, but it was something that um, was innovative and new, but it wasn't good enough. And so they discontinued it. But he decided to use that one for me. And my dad and my mother told me that the doctors after the surgery said, we don't think he'll make it. And I, I sometimes think doctors say all that bogus, um, pessimistic uh, dilemma to make them look like gods. Because <laughs> then we praise them and we worship them and we think they're amazing. That's the cynic in me. It's an interesting yeah. view. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, I get I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, I think we have a love-hate relationship with doctors. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> But I survived, but they did say, you know, look, you're not going to live very long. There's nothing else for you. Your heart's going to outgrow this. And this was before Francois Fontaine of, of France had come up with the Fontaine procedure for children born with single functioning ventricles, hypoplastic, they now call it hypoplastic left heart or hypoplastic right heart. And in my scenario, it was, it was double inlet left ventricle transposition of the greater arteries or vessels and the large ASD in the pulmonary stenosis. I ended up outgrowing the, the deadline, no pun intended, of what the doctors said would happen. Um, and I, I got in, and, but you know, like most of us, I didn't have a lot of energy as a kid, but I had adapted. I didn't know anything else. So I was outside playing with kids and my mother couldn't get online and be scared. No, it whatever. wasn't that sort of, that didn't exist it, really. You know, that was no. non-existent. And did you, like, because how old were you when you had that first surgery then? I was an infant. Right. So I don't know. I just had a, I just didn't want to take my shirt off at the pool because everyone stared at my scar, scared at my, stared at my scar. And I would tell the other kids I was already in a gang and been <laughs> shot. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'd already done enough drugs as a nine-year-old that they, they got me in a, a gang fight. So 
See, <laughs> don't don't mess with Paul. <laughs> yeah, don't don't. We have to use some humor, I think, or we're gonna go crazy. Oh, definitely. That's what like that's how I spent most of my childhood. I would like think light of my heart condition rather than always looking on the negative side of the heart condition. And I still do that now at thirty six years old. I still try and remain like always positive and because funny because my wife she always like says that when it comes to heart stuff i'm like no bother i'll just get on with it but if i have a cold it's the end of the world oh, <laughs> you know I, I, but, but that's a man thing too though yeah. <laughs> <laughs> honey take care of me uh but you know you bring up with with marriage um and i don't want to fast forward but like we have our moms and not everybody has really good mothers in the chd world but my mother coddled me along with the other eight children it wasn't like spoiling us but she was very attentive we had a mom in the home right yeah and so she was available to help us with homework um take us places it was a hard hard job to be um a homemaker my father was a journalist, and so he was a pessimist by trade and would ask good questions. And they supported each other so well that they knew how to make sure that we were all taken care of. My mother, with eight kids, would figure out how to carve up a chicken so that we all ate and then would make jello. <laughs> and were you the only sibling with the heart condition or? yeah that's that's yeah. pretty crazy you know that and i take it there was nothing like with your parents they didn't have any it wasn't come down from you them or anything it was no that's well my mother my mother had that little sister that died from a heart yeah. defect but you know i don't i don't think we know enough yet if our bloodline had any of it because we can't go back and say what somebody died of you know 100 years ago <clears throat> so we don't really know but i think in general, it was one of those things where I used to say, Mom, Mom, were you doing the pipe? What's going on here? <laughs> did, you, did Dad, did you fall down the stairs? Or What's going on here? And she's like, no, no, no. And, you know, and you realize, oh, I shouldn't have said that to my mom. That's not fair. <laughs> she, she carried me. Yeah. You know, I lived it. I lived inside her like a bear, bear hibernating for the winter, you know. <laughs> And I guess we're having all those siblings. That helps as well because they like I I've got, old, I've got an older sister, and that's all we have. And you kind of want to keep up as well, you know. You don't want to fall back and be yeah. last in line. Whereas you, but especially if you've got eight going about, it's going to be a lot of fighting. <laughs> oh, it was. It was. It was uh, organized chaos. And when my mother. I had three older sisters already. So when my mother brought me into that first appointment or second year appointment to the cardiologist, the doctor looked at her and saw that she was pregnant and she already had four and she was under the age of 30. So the doctor's like, are you crazy? What are you doing? This child needs attention, you know? And uh, uh, two years later, the cardiologist saw how me and my brother that was born would play together and challenge each other and hit each other and tease each other. And he goes, I have to apologize 
that is the best thing that could have happened to Paul because his lungs are expanding <laughs> for additional survival and defense. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it was a pretty awesome, normal childhood. And my parents, you know, we ate dinner around the dinner table. Um, I got into scouting when I was 12. I loved camping in the mountains. Um, but I, and I'd go on these hikes and I was always the slowest. I was always at the, it was me and the real chubby diabetic kid in the back. <laughs> so the scoutmaster was like, okay, at least I've got a couple kids who can keep, who I don't have to, you know, I don't have to rush up the mountain. But it was after I, uh, I was very involved in scouting and I, I, I set my mind to all that, you know, the merit badges and everything. And right after I got, you know, in the United States, we have the Eagle Award. Okay. I don't know if that's in, I, which is no, the I've not heard top of that before. So it's the top award. Yeah, our, our national bird is the Eagle. So you get the merit badge and you have to do all these service projects. You have to, you have to organize all these things. And I got it. And then a month later, I got endocarditis. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that was and that, yeah, that landed me in the hospital, but they could not find the source of the infection. They were shoving antibiotics into my body, but I wasn't getting better. And this was 1986. That's when they said, oh, well, we've got this massive machine in a warehouse that just got here a couple months ago. It's called an MRI. You know, I sound like I'm a, you know, I'm a pioneer and I've <laughs> got a wagon or something, you know, and, and, but uh, they put me in that MRI and they found the source of the infection that it was actually on the pots shut. Oh, wow. Okay. That, that the cardiologist, the thoracic surgeon had done. Um, and that was from was, birth. It, was, yeah. From birth. So it was a walnut sized blister uh, full of staph. And it was wow. just, so he had to figure out how to go in there and take it out and replace it with something without me bleeding to death. Mm. And he was a very skilled surgeon that did it. But, you know, it was one of those moments where the whole family comes up in the station wagon and you're not sure how, if you're going to live or not. And so it was one of those say goodbye moments. Um, and I have a, I, my parents are very, they're part of the LDS church. Um, they're Christians. They're very, they pray all the time. And so a lot of the, a lot of their mindset was on faith in God and believing in the impossible. So they would manifest um that everything's going to work out and and that mindset was a powerful form of energy that was implanted in me to believe that anything is possible and and you can attribute it to any particular religion i think because all religions have have you believe in things that are just almost unbelievable yeah you know what i mean uh-huh and ours was pretty darn good because it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and they they it was a successful surgery but you know they they then said you know come back go back to school but come back in a year and um we need to do what's called the fontan yeah i've only heard very little of that i didn't actually know about fontan until i started doing these podcasts and it was one of my guests was one of the first people that told me about it she i think she's the same age as me maybe a bit younger and she had one when they were young um and she'd actually posted a spotlight on her instagram page about you receiving Mm. this and that's when i was like oh (laughs) i was like oh (laughs) i'll mention this when we chat (laughs) oh that's awesome yeah that's awesome was that nola it was lauren um oh Lauren. okay yeah yeah from texas i believe yeah yeah Yeah. fontan procedure allows those born with single functioning ventricles to have an alternate uh, ventricle put in um they create pretty much that part of the body that allowed the part of the heart in, that enables to get um, blood flow properly. Right. And the one I had was kind of the old school version and they needed to do, you know, a Windows 95. They, I, I had the Windows 95 and, and the kids today get like a brand new Macintosh. <laughs> so, so, you know, but you know, I, I came back and I and I had the procedure for the Fontan, and it was miserable because they, I had they had to open up my chest three different times. I almost died again. Um, the Fontan was relatively new; he hadn't performed hardly any of it ever. They ended up giving me a pacemaker, so I was a ticking time bomb with that. My and I couldn't stand near the microwave. My brother's in cooking a burrito. I'm like, you're killing me. You're killing me. So let me know when you're going to do that. You know, and if you put a magnet over your pacemaker, the magnet, the pacemaker stops. So you know, if my my siblings would be like, if you don't be nice to me, I'm going to chase you around Go the house chase with, you mag- with the magnet. <laughs> Yeah, and but your pacemaker pretty much just helps the electrical uh, section of the heart to continue to to work and function. And and my friends in junior in middle school, you know, fourteen, fifteen, they're like, "Yeah, I think my grandpa's got one of those." Yeah, it's not really associated with younger people, but yeah, like that's just what we got on with. So I, I know someone else with a pacemaker because it's the same age as me now. But like they were they were a teenager when they got it, you know. Yeah. And, and then and then you have to go in like every three, four years because the battery dies. So you're running <laughs> you're running on batteries. And I collected I think four or five of them with the intent to decorate a Christmas tree uh when I was 60 with just pacemakers. <laughs> So, and, and then you just plug the lights in to the pace. Yeah, it lights up itself. <laughs> it just lights itself up. So, yeah, so I pretty much, that was my life. But but um, where the music came in was after that third surgery. Uh, I sat at the piano and I didn't really know how to play. I'd taken piano lessons a little bit, maybe for a year. But um, I just started playing, making stuff up pounding it, hitting different keys, turning them into melodies, 
to process the trauma. That was that's what I want to ask mainly about your career because I noticed the time when you picked up the piano. Well, didn't pick up the piano because they're heavy, but um, <laughs> when you started playing the piano, it was around yeah. 13, 14, and I was intrigued to know if that was to do with the whole heart condition going in, growing up, and not being able to do even sport or that because I. Yeah. I played I play guitar and I played um, piano a little bit when I was younger. I play guitar now, and I mainly went into music because I couldn't get involved in sports. Yeah, so I was one. That's what I was one to ask you. And that's that. I'm guessing that's the same sort of idea. Yeah, it it is. Music, first of all, releases dopamine. It boosts your immune system. It has so many health benefits. And um, I a friend of mine who was perfectly healthy and normal got hit by a car. So I was kind of angry at the universe, at, at God, trying to understand, you know, why am I, why am I all scarred up? I have these ongoing surgeries. My dad is stressed about medical bills. You know, we're carving up that chicken and eating brownies, real small squares. You know, I'm a problem. So why is one day, my friend who's perfectly healthy gets hit by a car, you know, and it's an easy way out. And I wasn't depressed. I wasn't suicidal. I was just trying to understand what the hell this is. There's so many ironies in life. I was born into a good home. Why are people born into a bad home? These, this is all part of development. You know, uh, why, why do I have a bad, why does my skateboard suck and others people's is really good? Um, things like that, you know, <laughs> why do I like the Smiths and everyone likes Motley Crue? Um, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. So I sat at the piano and I pounded out anger and, you know, you know, from being in the hospital that we're used to hearing a lot of noise of beep, beep, beep. And I hit a couple notes just like real gentle and it, it was so comforting and peaceful that it was actually a melody. So I just sat at the piano daily and I started to feel joy in creation. I was creating things that never were before and remembering those things. And then I would just share them with people and play for people at their request. And that's how it, it just kind of evolved into a career, but it really, it was for me. And then it started helping other people um, because what I do is very relaxing, calm piano music. And yeah, I've listened to a couple of tracks. I went and I, I couldn't tell you the names off by heart, but I did, I asked my Alexa device just to play songs from uh, Paul Cardall and <laughs> there were, um, really like uh, you say peaceful music and oh, like sometimes you. there's nothing better than just having that kind of chilled relaxed yeah even, thank you yeah you know. she's one of my favorite employees <laughs> <laughs> we got to work on siri but uh no um <clears throat> no thank you i yeah i mean that's we i think we all need to discover meaning in life and gifts that we have within us help us discover that purpose why we're here what we're doing you know all that stuff yeah and 
with so you were completely self-taught then i'm guessing with that way the way you were speaking and was creating your own label was that down to just another purpose in finding a way of reaching out to more people and hoping that more people will listen and understand your message yeah you know paul mccartney talks about this he's totally self-taught and he's like I have to hire these guys to do the sheet music and write it down. And I'm like, well, I totally get that. You know, Jimi Hendrix was the same. Some of us just have a natural gift to be able to create. And I was playing with musicians who I thought were phenomenal and people need to hear these musicians. One of them was Stephen Sharp Nelson, who is a cellist. And um, another friend of mine was a piano player, John Schmidt. And I recorded and produced Steve's first album and put it on my label. And then those two got together and formed a group called the Piano Guys, uh, which has become a very popular uh, group that performs all over the world. But I was having fun helping other people because it was it had always been about building my brand, my career. People were asking me for my music. And I was like, you gotta hear this guy. You know, uh, this guy's amazing. I can only send out so many invoices. You know, let's get, and, and I want to share it with these people. So, yeah, I think, but the, the overall arc and the whole purpose of it was I know that people are hurting inside and it doesn't necessarily come from, you know, having a bad heart. It comes from having a broken heart. And my life's work ever since I discovered the gift of music is to use that as a tool so people can access uh, spiritual feelings have healing. Um, my heart's been healed. I want to help people have their heart healed mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Yeah. And I, I'm get like we mentioned earlier, well, you mentioned earlier, right at the beginning about Sean White and the whole not saying about having a heart condition in his career. And did you feel, because you, you, you've never really hit it, the fact, because when I was looking you up, it was all quite well known that you'd had a lot of heart issues. So did you feel that you didn't have to hide your heart condition while doing all your music? My music was born out of the condition. And my story, I got, my community is very big and everybody knows what's going on. So I was already kind of the center of attention. I was the, I was like, I always say I was Lazarus, you know, <laughs> that was dying and then he dies and he goes in a tomb and then all of a sudden Jesus has to bring him back and he walks out and now he's got to deal with that. <laughs> so I was out of here and Jesus came by and brought me alive again. And so everyone's talking about Lazarus. So you know, everyone talks about the family because they're concerned. And then when they can play, the, and so when I started playing the piano, everyone started asking me to play. And it tied in because the music is tied to our emotions. Yeah. And 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 when you are in the music industry, you have to, you have to, with your niche, people need to know where does this come from? What is it about? And so early on, I had to share that I believe life is worth fighting for and 
I, I have credibility in saying that you have credibility in saying that because we've gone through hell to be here. Yeah, totally. Going with your heart condition, I, after you had that fontan and started playing piano, you obviously became well known and got your went around touring, but it wasn't all like you had to stop for a while. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it it it's interesting because you know you have complications anytime you have a fontan, and you always have to get in to see your cardiologist so that they are fully aware of what's going on. A lot of people um, get comfortable and so they don't think they need to go in and see their doctor. And with hearts and bad hearts, there's days where you feel amazing and days where you don't feel very good. Um, I was constantly going in because of the pacemaker checkups um, and I would get sick. But at those times, ironically, um, I would, it was always around the time I was working on a project. I was launching a new album. Uh, you know, I was working with the orchestra. I was working on this project and, and I, I'm kind of a, I, I, I give it all in. I don't want to say workaholic, but I don't know if I'm not going to be around tomorrow. So I'm like, I'm just going to get all this done. I have to like say something I've learned now to slow down. Uh, but you, it, you have to get it done. It's like the end of the world because we go in emergency mode. Those of us that have been in the hospitals our entire life, it's like end of the world. We have to hurry. Like we got to get this done. And I, that's a kind of a, that's a PTSD condition that I didn't know I had it had until later. But every time I was doing these big projects, uh, getting, you know, a number one record or something, then I would get super sick. And I'd end up in the hospital. And my dad was like, you're spreading yourself thin. You're running faster than is necessary. You know, early to bed, early to wise. Rise makes a grown man healthy and wise. You know, my dad's very, very uh, disciplined. Right, yeah. He's he's also a right, uh, left-brained. And I, I not only had the bad ticker, but I was born with a right brain mentality. I'm an artist. So I'm dysfunctional by birth um, because I'm a creative and I don't like rules. <laughs> so it's a disaster. Uh, but I have to create and it's obsessive um, to do it. But yeah, I would get sick and sick and sick and in and out of the hospital every time. But every time I was like back in dying there'd be like this amazing product that would come out this incredible record um and eventually i ended up getting so sick as a 34 year old that i was in heart failure they had me wearing oxygen full time and i did have to stop doing stuff but i kept doing it i'd find a way to get in the studio but and I'd hire people to get other stuff done for me. Um, but yeah, they, they told me I needed a heart transplant. And how did that make you feel? Like, because obviously going through where you went as a child, thinking you're doing pretty well, and then being like on the go all this time and being told that sudden like, no, 
like heart transplant. It's awful. It was awful because um, my daughter was three years old. And there was another group of congenital cardiologists that had been around a while who said, don't get a transplant, do a Fontan revision. Meanwhile, there was a brand new congenital cardiologist who specialized in adults. She said, not in your case, and I'm speaking of my case. So if somebody hears this, it's my case. Don't do the revision and that'll kill you. So I've got the good old boys <clears throat> who've been with me forever saying, don't get a transplant, it'll kill you. Uh, and then this smart, I would never cross her, intelligent woman, cutting edge, because uh, you always have to say cutting edge when you're talking about heart surgery, um, <laughs> telling me don't do the revision. And I decided, I, I, I just, I talked to my wife about it and family, and then it came down to my daughter. If I did the revision, there was a chance I could live, a, you know, eight years more if it's successful and then do the transplant. But if I get the transplant, I'll die at after I, because my heart would have been worked on so many times, it would just be really too complicated, maybe too late. I might not even be able to get that transplant in eight years. And if I don't, and if I die from the revision, um, you know, my daughter would be three years old, but if I survived it, maybe she'd be, you know, 12 years old when I pass away. Or do I get a transplant and I risk um, those first couple of years or even dying from the transplant to where I could potentially live 40, 50 years? So I, I looked at my daughter as the deciding factor because I want to be around to enjoy her because I don't know that the kids are around to enjoy us. We need them more than they need us, but I want to be around to enjoy her and watch her grow. And so I was going to risk the worst. I was going to go with the young doctor's analysis and I, and I was going to go for the longest amount of time. And so I decided to get transplanted. Um, and you don't just get transplanted. You have to go through a series of You know, it's a very tests. long process, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very difficult to, um, it's like trying to become a citizen of the United States. You know, it's, there's a lot of paperwork and you can't just cross the border. <laughs> uh, <laughs> people try, but, uh, yeah, so the transplant doctor told me that if I get listed, it would, I said, how long do I have? They said, in your condition, you have about a year to live. Um, or it's going to take a, I said, how long is it going to get a heart? We have O positive blood, the most popular blood, and the most amount of people needing organs is that blood type. So it's, it may take a year. So a year to live and a year to get the heart. So even then it was like, oh, good bullocks, you know? I was like, what am I gonna do here? Anyways, we went for it. We got, we passed the testing and we ended up getting on the transplant list. And back then they'd give you a pager because we were still kind of 
cell phones were still written. This is two. This is two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Okay. And how were you feeling yourself? Because, like, did you feel really sick? Did you like you know you said they were given that year, they, the to live. Did you feel that you were on that downward slope? You know, um, I gave. And this is not to promote. This is not to promote the Broken Miracle book, but J.D. Netto, who wrote the Broken Miracle, I handed over my journals to him. I I've kept meticulous journals um, through the years. My father being a, a journalist, and so I would write my feelings and emotions, and he dove into that and did a beautiful job of of writing the Broken Miracle, and I was able to go back and read it and revisit all those things. And I had forgotten how optimistic I was. Okay. I, I was very driven by, I was born for a purpose. I had survived. I had survived at the, the, the endocarditis, the Fontan, the pacemaker stuff, cardioversions. I was, I was starting to think I was a cat you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber's cat, and I had nine lives, and I'd only exhausted about six or seven of them. So I was like, no, 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 I'm not gonna die. And that's, when you get listed for the heart, you have to have that mentality. Yeah. You have to be strong for your family. And then the waiting process and all that stuff is, is hard, because you're in and out of the hospital. Some days you're good and some days you're not. And in the United States, if you look like you feel good, the insurance tells the hospital to get them out because the insurance doesn't want to pay for it because it's all privatized. I, like, this, I, I always find this, this stuff with the insurance just ridiculous. And it's like... We used, yeah, we used to not even have, be able to get insurance. It was pre-existing. We could not get insurance. I, I had to pay out of pocket or there were government programs that were like, Ridiculous. That's something that Barack Obama changed. Um. Yeah, and it was. I think I was reading with your transplant. You spent almost a year on the list anyway before your transplant. Is that right? Is that yeah? Yeah, I waited. I ended up waiting, and I was in the hospital. I waited three hundred and eighty-five days. So did you eventually go into like have to be admitted and wait? Oh this? yeah, like that's yeah, how, lived... that how sick you got then. Well, yeah, and it was interesting because back then you're adult and you're not supposed to stay in the children's hospital because of the ethics. You're an adult. Um, but the hospital, the children's hospital, was the only place that had the experts and the team to save my life. So they had to cut some red tape to to make that happen. And so I lived in the children's hospital as a, as a father and a grown man you know me and Tommy who's got cancer at six in the morning they'd get us up to go get x-rays we'd both we'd both remind each other to close the flap in the back <clears throat> you know um, I'd hear kids crying at night and the father in me is like That's what can I do heartbreaking yeah like yeah and ironically it was a beautiful experience because it allowed me to forget about what I was going through. Right, yeah. 
as a father, I was like, man, what can I do for these kids? And you can't know what's going on. No. It's like the, the it's winter as well, because you were obviously in there as an adult, but then you were there as a child as well. So yeah. you, you kind of know what they're going through so you can understand, but at the same time, you like just want to help them because they're, they're kids, you know, it's yeah such a tough thing. And when you got your transplant, like, did you notice an instant change on how you felt? Or because I, um, I hear a lot of people when they get transplants, you obviously got the worry of it being rejected. And yeah, is that kind of what's the word like danger period, you know? It's it's challenging because mentally and emotionally, I had been drained because while waiting for my transplant, and we don't have to get into details, my brother who was finishing up his PhD, uh, who was 32 years old, who dealt with uh, mental illness, had an episode and he ended up dying while I was waiting for my heart. And we had to go through that experience of being on the other side of the table should we donate his organs. And so by the time I was in the hospital, I had been grieving my brother and trying to be strong for my mother because I there was no way she was going to lose two sons. Um, so once I got the transplant, it was such a moment of, I, I woke up to heaven because heaven for me is this world. It's the people we know now. Why would you ever want to leave those people? And I saw family there and I was like, I've been through hell and now here I am in heaven and it happens to be this world right now this planet, even with all the suffering and the craziness, I was able in that moment to find such joy for all the needles, um, broken sternums, sawed open. You know, we pretty much volunteer ourselves to be tortured. Yeah. You know, we get really good drugs, uh, but the long-term psychological effects of the trauma comes into play as we become older and try to process everything. And music is a powerful gift to help us do that. Um, my nails started to grow. I, I was clipping my nails once a week and I was like, this is weird. I usually clip my nails like every two months. Um, I was growing hair on my hands and my, um, like, I'm not a hairy guy, but I started to grow a lot more hair. I was like, crap, I'm turning into Robin Williams. Um, you know, uh, my lips were a lot real pink. And it was kind of like I had been driving around, and I didn't know this, but I was driving around the old pickup truck that grandpa would use on his farm or garden. And nobody wanted to drive that truck because it was always, you know, filthy and dirty and going to break down any moment. And it was like, that was my heart and it died. And then they gave me the keys to a Porsche. So 
I started to feel so unbelievably healthy that I wanted to go do things I never thought I'd ever do. Like I learned to ski. I became an advanced scuba certifier, a scuba, scuba diver, um, traveling all over the world. Um, as a result of the transplant, um, I have two daughters. So one before and one yeah. after and without my donor, she wouldn't even exist. No, that's, that's incredible. And how, was it in 2009, you ended up getting the transplant. Yeah. And since then you've been yeah. great. So obviously yeah. you have to get checks and things. But... Knock on wood, but yeah, checkups and, you know, I do have, I am pre-diabetic now. Um, I think that's genetic though. No, okay. I just have to avoid chocolates. <laughs> that's so hard to do. <laughs> I know. I have to avoid all the best stuff, but you know, unfortunately, I'm I'm married to a, a nutritionist and a fitness. Oh well, then you're put into shape that way, then. Well, yeah, but it's still like I get my hand in the cookie jar every now and then, and she <laughs> she slaps, slaps my hand, you know, out of love because she doesn't want anything to happen to me. But no, I mean, you know, you know, you have to watch what you eat. Yeah, it's it's difficult, but well, I guess I should say we have to watch what other people eat. <laughs> yeah, we don't. Yeah, and deny ourselves of that. Yeah, it's only recently I've. Well, the last time I went to my cardiologist, they were telling me to cut out coffee more. I used to drink maybe two cups of coffee a day. The caffeine. Yeah, but I don't think it was. It was more of the sugar rather than the. Oh, cause, cause more issues than natural caffeine, I think. Yeah. So how do you wait? How do you wake up in the morning? How do you wake up in the morning without the coffee? Cold shower. <laughs> Just blast that ice shower. That's Cold like, showers. That's a solution for something else. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, that's awesome. That, that, yeah, it was just that they've. That's what they recommended. I have like maybe one a week now, two a week, just a yeah. week, like. Which is good because I, I can't cut out completely because that's just insane. He was a, he was well, a madman. <laughs> <laughs> coffee, well, the, you know, there's a lot of coffee drink and tea. Um, and I grew up in a, in a religion that where you couldn't, well, it was the, the Mormon culture. You can't drink coffee and you can't drink because it was a, a an expression of sacrifice that you're willing to give something up in the world. Um, and so we drank a lot of diet Coke. Okay. A lot of soda, uh -huh. but it's not as it's, it's not healthy. No, it's just, it's just as bad. <laughs> it's, it's worse. <laughs> so, so, um, I'm used to denying myself of things. Um, and, uh, but you know, you get a transplant, you're like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to break some rules. Yeah, because with, with transplant, you had to probably, to, well, to one day on the list, you probably had some really strict rules with that, I'm guessing. Yeah, and, and I think anyone who's got a life of congenital heart disease and then they need the transplant, I think it's really important to get some therapy as you process things through, because I never did any of that. And then later it would hit me, everything I'd been through, 
because um, there's no warning label on the heart. And now we know that hearts carry within it memory DNA, cellular DNA. And so, you know, you, our muscles know how to ride bicycles. We've we learned how to do it. We know how to do it just like we know how to walk. It's an inherent learned thing. So when we get the heart of somebody else, we have their DNA, their memory cellular DNA embedded into it. So there's there's things that happen to us uh, that work that are foreign that we don't recognize that sometimes I'll be depressed and I'll go that's not me. And my 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 donor was a very um, depressed person he he I think he struggled from mental illness. And I don't want to shift you don't want to shift it onto somebody else you know you can tell your wife it's not me. But you know, I already, I, I stop breaking my heart. She'll be like, you already, I, you already have a broken heart. You know? <laughs> so anyways, but yeah, I mean, it's this interesting thing. And then the other thing is there's no nerve from your brain telling your heart how to work. No. So you guys that have the nerves to the heart function like a helicopter, you can get up and go and move around and all that stuff. I'm like a jet. So, and that, you know, that goes with everything. And so there's not enough cold showers. <laughs> I have to do it like your coffee two or three times a week. But yeah, those are the things you have to relearn. Your hormones are enhanced. Right. Yeah. Know? And it's like being a 12 year old all over again and trying to figure out how to control yourself. So it's, it's like once the, the transplant, it's kind of just like a whole relearning process in a way. Yeah. That's interesting because yeah. like, I'm not had a transplant myself, so I don't know. I've only had uh, valve replacements and things. Uh, so I've never, but I've spoken to transplant people, but you're the first transplant patient I've spoken to that's gone and talked about that side of it. You know, normally they were like, yeah, I've come out transplant and I'm feeling good type of idea. But I've never heard. Yeah gone into the details of a transplant you know it's it's interesting you know it's a lot nobody wants to yeah nobody wants to hit puberty twice (laughs) it was awkward the first time and it's more awkward the second time (laughs) (laughs) yeah because you're a grown man that's good it's great it's beautiful (laughs) i mean i wouldn't trade any i mean i was thinking about this you know uh it I don't know why each of us are born with our lot that we've been given, you know, and you can be like uh, uh, somebody who may believe, you know, there's all these different beliefs of what life is and, you know, say we're reincarnated, which, you know, some people believe this, you know, what did I do to deserve such a beautiful life? And yet, what did I do to deserve such a shitty life? Yeah. You know, you know, or, or if there's another one, I, I hope I don't have, I, well, maybe in the next one, I get a good heart. You know, I don't know. And you tend to think, what's it all about? And it's easy to sum it up with Christianity and say, you know, life, there's life after death and we go to heaven and, and, you know, that sounds, that sounds really fascinating. But I'm like, well, there's no problems. 
how, how are you going to know the joy if you don't experience some of the pain? Yeah. So all of a sudden we, we have no pain. I'm not advocating pain. Nobody wants pain, but it's your CS Lewis. Who's the meaning of pain. You know, you can't really experience true love in all its forms and unless you suffer a little bit. So I don't know about you, but I'm constantly philosophizing and thinking about the purpose of it all. And all I know is I, I love my life and I wouldn't trade it with anyone. No, that, and that's an, it's an interesting question that because I actually asked, well, someone asked this else. When I did my first season, I did the finale episode of Brought Back Old Guests. And one of the guests asked, if you could change having a heart condition, would you do it? And a lot of them had said no, because they would have never had the experiences they've had in this life if it wasn't for their heart condition. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's an interest, like, that's the same as myself. You wonder, would I be where I am and have, like, you've got your two daughters, and it's like, would I have my, my son if I went a different, you know, it's, yeah that is an incredible thought you know like sometimes if you think about it too much it freaks you out and you kind of just like no <laughs> i just don't want to talk about it, you know yeah i think it's i think it's harder on parents because they have to watch you suffer and they don't get the drugs <laughs> They can get drugs, but <laughs> they can because we, you know, we in life, as you know, we soothe our trauma with all kinds of temporary solutions. We get self-help books, we get religion, or we get drugs, we get you know, sex, whatever. We're trying to soothe ourselves from pain and, um, what I've discovered with having a heart transplant is it's easier for me to soothe by just being around people and having conversation uh, because it's, you're usually alone in a children's hospital at night. It's dark. The nurses come in every two hours and unless they're, I love nurses. <laughs> Um, and I, I love my nurses, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where gratitude and being with people helps you, I think, soothe through everything. Yeah. Pro process it all. Totally. I, I know, yeah, I totally get that. And right now in your life, you're, well, everyone seems to be over this COVID thing that happened. Um, <laughs> you, well, what happened? What happened? The last two years, are just, it just doesn't exist anymore. Um, well, unless you go to New York City. It still happens there, does it? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, are you, you're back, you're on tour just now, or are you? What, um, so I'm actually taking a week um, to take a road trip through some of the American history sites. I love history, and I, I, um, I had a week to prepare before I have to go and compose this new album and I and, and the album I'm working on is about the heart of um, people that came to America 
and it's not a it's not a patriotic or national record. I just wanted to tell the story of people who migrate for a better life. Okay, and, yeah. And so I, I'm visiting a lot of sites for inspiration. Um, I was at Benjamin Franklin's grave today. Oh wow! And he was the one that came up with the idea that um, the states in America could be united and all work together. Um, so, and then my ancestors that left Scotland and England to come and migrate across the United States, their sacrifices. So there's a lot of that kind of going in. So it's kind of like a gratitude for what's been laid down for us to enjoy. Because right across the street, it's crazy, because right across the street, around the corner, is where Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. Okay. And there's still a museum there. But across the street is the Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's that's and not the same. <laughs> well, I was like, well, he, you know, did you uh, like donuts? <laughs> he, uh, we we broke off. We broke off from 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 the motherland uh, in order to preserve the right to create an industry of Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> the sacrifices are well, because you know, then when I was in the cemetery, I was like, they didn't even get to try the donuts. You don't know. You don't know what's across yeah. the road. But you stay away because it's got the coffee. So, <laughs> but I'll, I'll let you get on with your American history tour. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, but thank you very much for taking time out. Like, thank you, know, you this Stuart. Is, this is like been really great speaking to you and learn another story. And like I said, someone that's more like established in the world than I'll ever be. <laughs> but, uh, we have no control over it. We have uh, no control over it. What, you know, uh, so. A quick question before we go. It's yeah. like, can we go into the music? Like, we'll talk a bit about music. Look, your music, like you, you love playing music and that. Who are your main influences and what do you listen to when it's not like oh. you're, when you're not oh. in your composing mode? Well, I, I, I love Mozart because he's extremely melodic. Um, but I listen to a lot of rock and roll across the board. I listen to a lot of American music, country music. Um, um, Pink Floyd is one of my biggest influences. Um, the Smiths, Depeche Mode, um, Peter Gabriel, Sting, um, pretty much everyone across the Atlantic. And um, <laughs> Coldplay is a big influence. Um, Merle Haggard. Johnny Cash, um, some of our what we call hillbillies, and uh, <clears throat> there's I like to discover young artists that no one's really heard. There's an artist Corey Asbury, Brent, Benjamin Hastings, um, and um, there's an artist I really like named Lauren Daigle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so they all American people are they? They're they're all they're all American, right. yeah. Yeah, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. So I'm around a lot of these people all the time, and we have a lot of music. Yeah, I, I'd love to visit Nashville. That's one of it's, my go-to places when I can afford to fly over to America. <laughs> yeah, you gotta get your drinking friends, you know, because we got the saloons and the honky tonk. So, have you been to the Bluebird then? 
Yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting. The Bluebird is actually in a in what we call a strip mall. It's in the suburbs, but I have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's yeah. like what well, the Eagles here. The, the Bluebird was like the place where all these artists go to be found. And is it? It's where Garth what they say? Brooks was discovered. Yeah, it is. It really yeah. is. What it is is in in the industry you have songwriters. You have songwriters and the publishers that have these songwriters work for them. They organize writers in the rounds and they partner with these places like Bluebird. Oh, okay. So they send their writers in and they get public reaction. And if the right. public like what they're hearing, they'll go and take that music and sell it to Keith Urban or artists like that. But every now and then inside the Bluebird, is an is a writer who ends up being a Dirk Bentley, you know, or a Keith Urban or a Garth Brooks or Miranda Lambert. They write and they perform, and so they become successful. But yeah, it's it's possible. Cool. That is a place I'd like to visit. Like yeah, you would love uh, it. Yeah, because um, it's a Zach Brown band that. Oh yeah, I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of it. So I managed to see, I managed to see them in London, and oh cool. Um, I was watching a documentary. It was actually a Foo Fighters documentary, and yeah. Zach Brown was on it. And they were playing. They were talking about the Bluebird and playing in like in Nashville and things. I was like, I need to go there. <laughs> yeah, you'd love it. John, John Driscoll, who's their their um, one of their guitarists. Oh yeah. Mine and, oh really? Wow. Yeah, he looks just like Zach, and uh, yeah, so. He's Great he's so talented. Like, well, the whole band's talented. Like, it's on. Oh, but that was one of the best bands I've seen live. And we 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 want the Mumford's Mumford and Sons, and you guys want Zach Brown band. <laughs> Mumford and Sons are great as well. There. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen them the live. One that, well. The one the member they kicked out of the band offices below me with his new company. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they kicked him out, and he fled England. So. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, I remember him getting kicked out of the enough. Well, he was, he was, yeah, the American politics divides people. It's just sad. Yeah. Of course, that's that's everywhere. That's everywhere. So, hey, dude, well, awesome, Stuart. Thank you so much. Let me know when this is out. Yeah. Um, and I I'll, would love to share it with people. Well, you know, thanks for uh, coming on, and I'll catch you later. All right, man. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.